Weddings, as great as they uh, can be, almost always have something go wrong with them. Uh, whether it's the ceremony itself or the preparations leading up to it, it can pretty much be guaranteed that something is going to go wrong along the way. Probably the best thing that you can do is hope that it's something that is relatively minor or something that you don't really care about or doesn't really matter that much when it happens. Now, since becoming a pastor, I've had my fair share of wedding faux pas. Uh, in fact, there's always little bits of advice that I give to the wedding party, you know, during the wedding rehearsal and things like that. Like one that I would often give to the wedding party is about the wedding rings. When, you know, the giving of the wedding rings and the vows are being done, I will always tell the wedding party, if someone drops the ring, nobody reaches down to get it, that I will be the one who will get you know, get the ring because we don't want the whole wedding party rushing in and conking heads and things like that. So I was like, if the wedding, if a ring drops, I will pick it up. Everybody just, you know, stay where, where they're at. And of course, I remember when there was one wedding that I was doing, and of course, I'm giving this instruction during the rehearsal. And I tell them, I was like, but you know, don't worry about that because in all the weddings I've done, I've never, ever dropped the rings before famous last words because in that ceremony the next day I ended up dropping both of the rings. Thankfully nobody jumped in to get it. I was able to bend down and pick them up myself. But my favorite wedding story gone wrong is one that I did was maybe a couple years ago and I think it was up in the Shelbyville area. Now Another warning that I often give the bridal party uh, is, you know, when you're standing up in front of, you know, in front of the altar, or up on the stage, or, you know, wherever the wedding is being done, to not lock your knees while you're standing there. It's same type of advice giving to marching bands and people in ROTC and things like that, that if you stand too long with your knees knocked, at, uh, your knees locked, uh, it can cut off circulation and you can actually pass out from it. And so I warn them, like, don't lock your knees. Make sure to bend your knees a little bit so, you know, it doesn't cut off circulation. Well, during the ceremony, while the bridesmaids were coming down the aisle, one of the guys, which I think he was prone to fainting spells, I can't remember, had some kind of medical thing. I see him walk off and go into a side room. And of course, I'm thinking, wow, he, you know, maybe he was starting to feel dizzy or maybe he was locking his knees. I don't know. But he went off to the side, which I'm like, okay, good. Like, it'd be terrible thing if he just passed out in front of everybody. Um, so anyway, the wedding continues, the bridal party comes, and then eventually the bride is walking down the aisle with her father. And I look over and I see that the guy is back in line. I'm like, well, okay, that's good. So the bride gets there and we're like doing the like giving away of the bride where the father is giving away the bride. And I see out of my peripheral vision, him walk off out of the room again, except this time, as soon as he leaves the room, everyone heard this loud crash and like everything went silent for a moment. And of course I'm like right in the middle of, you know, having the father give away the bride and you can't stop once you start. So I, I just kind of pretended like it didn't happen and kept going on, you know, with the wedding ceremony. And of course we got through the wedding ceremony and then found out later that he had actually was feeling dizzy, walked into the other room and passed out face first into one of those like long plastic tables and literally split the table, broke the table in half with his face. Now I would be lying if I said I didn't laugh really, really hard at that. <laughs> I felt kind of bad for him and felt bad for him at the time, but I think we all uh, got a laugh out of that. And it is a wedding that I will never ever forget for as long as I live and I don't think the bride and groom probably will either. Well, today I want to talk about a story in the Bible that is about another wedding that will never be forgotten. 
But before I do, I just want to welcome everyone to Church at Home and just thank you guys for joining us today that, you know, I know circumstances are hard to be able to have, you know, to still be sheltering in place and be worshiping at home, but we're glad that you're worshiping with us through the internet together. And so today we're starting a series going through key moments in the gospel of John, and we're calling this series Prove It. Now, this, the series is called Prove It, and it's based off a verse in John chapter 20, verse 30, where uh, the gospel writer gives the purpose statement. John is explaining why he wrote the gospel the way he did, and this is what it says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, he's talking about the ones in the gospel of John, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, the Gospel of John is centered around eight key miracles, signs that were meant to show John's audience, those who would be reading these Gospels, those who would be hearing these stories. Many of them were Jews spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Some of them were Greeks who, you know, were in that same area as well and were interested in the message of Christianity. And it was meant to show these people that this Messiah that many of these Jews had heard about, they'd read prophecies about, they had talked about, and even these Greeks, they started hearing these rumors about this anointed one, this chosen one in the Jewish faith. And so John was explaining that because of these things that Jesus did throughout his life and ministry, these things proved that he was this Messiah that you have so long heard about around the world. This is why Peter, uh, the apostle Peter would later say in Acts 2 verse 22, where he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. He's saying God proved who he was by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. See, both Peter and John knew that these signs that Jesus performed were confirming, were proving in a sense that Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed God's Messiah who had come to save the world from their sins. And so for the next two months, we're going to be looking at the significance of these eight signs to show you exactly what John was trying to tell his audience, not by just letting them know about the works of God through his son, Jesus, but also the significance of how they connect back to the wider story that God was telling literally from the beginning of the biblical narrative. And so now we come back to the wedding that you'll never forget. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 start out this way. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have, no, they have no more wine. Now, just a couple things that I want us to see right away at the beginning of this story. I mean, literally, the, like the beginning words in the text where it says, on the third day. It begins with these words that are meant to instill a certain amount of excitement, a certain amount of anticipation in the audience that what was about to happen was something life-changing and miraculous because see if you know your bible at all you know that events in the bible that started that you know happened on the third day 
were notorious for being moments when God showed up in a huge way. For example, Exodus 19.10 says, where the Lord is telling, this is right after the Israelites, uh, you know, pass through the Red Sea, Red sea uh, they've been delivered out of Egypt. And so God gives Moses this command. He says, and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. See, the Jewish people knew that on the third day, God shows up. In the book of Jonah, he was in the belly of the fish for three days, and it said that he was released on the third day. In Hosea 6.2, the Israelites were promised prophetically, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Over and over again, we're shown in the Bible that events on the third day were significant. Likely to be an event in which heaven and earth would come together and God would show up. And so, of course, all of these third day events throughout the Bible were actually pointing to a coming third day in John's gospel. The one in which heaven would come down and meet earth in the strongest way possible. And of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of Christ but I'm getting way ahead of myself. We're not gonna be there for a little while. So let's go back to the wedding. Now, the problem with all the chapters and verses in the Bible, because most people don't know this, but like the chapter markers and the verse markers are not original to the biblical manuscripts. I think that the chapters were first added in like 1227 AD. And then the verses much later in like something like, I think it was like 1555 the verses were added in later. But see, the problem with having chapters and verses is we tend to let the chapters and verses dictate our reading when we start and when we stop. I'm just going to read chapter one or I'm just going to read the first 10 verses that we let ourselves stop in places that maybe we shouldn't necessarily stop. And so we don't realize that oftentimes it's an entire story being woven together and much of what's happening in one story has connection to something that's happened before. Because if you start reading chapter 2, verse 1, where we started reading, you miss what the third day was referring to. Because see, earlier at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus actually speaks prophetically to a man named Nathaniel and says this, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, by the Spirit, Jesus spoke prophetically to Nathanael, impressing him in that moment. If you read the end of chapter 1, there's this interaction between Jesus and Nathanael. But Jesus replies to his marveling, saying, If you think that's impressive, Buckle up because what you're about to see will be even greater. In fact, there is a time coming when you will see heaven and earth literally coming together. And then immediately after he promises that, John chapter 2 begins and says, on the third day. See, John was preparing his audience for what was about to happen. He was preparing by saying on the third day, especially with the previous story, heaven and earth were about to meet, that we were about to see these greater things that Jesus had promised to Nathaniel. Now, back to the wedding again. So Jesus and his disciples are invited to this wedding in a little village called Cana. 
Now, John actually mentions that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited to the wedding as well. And it's really interesting he brings up Mary because, you know, even though Mary is a very significant figure in being the mother of God in the, you know, the biblical story, she's actually not in the gospel stories very much. She's in the birth story. She's at the crucifixion. And there's like one or two places where she makes just a small appearance, this being one of them. But other than that, the Mary, the mother of God, is honestly not talked about much in the scriptures. And there's a purpose for why this is here. And it makes sense she's in this story because Jewish weddings in the ancient world were these week-long celebrations that often included not just everybody in your village, but even people in surrounding villages as well. Because if you know your geography in the ancient world at all, uh, Cana was actually only four miles from Nazareth, which is likely where Mary lived, and maybe 16 to 17 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus kind of launched his ministry out. And so the story starts with Mary informing her son that the wedding had run out of wine. Now, this may not seem like a huge deal to us. I mean, there may be some of you like, no, no wine at a wedding is a pretty big deal. Um, but in the ancient world, like it was the biggest of deals. Wine was absolutely crucial to ancient Near Eastern weddings. Because if a bridegroom ran out of wine at a wedding, there would be social and possibly even legal consequences. You could be shamed for years and years to come and even be considered a disgrace to your family. See, Mary likely knew the groom or the bride or maybe just the family. And so she feels compassion for what's happening because she realizes this could literally ruin the wedding if they are kind of publicly shamed because they did not plan and have enough wine. Now, the tone of Mary's statement in the Greek where she says, you know, they are out of wine, there's not necessarily any authority or responsibility contained in this statement. It's more her just making an observation where it's almost like if you're at a party and you're like, hey, they ran, they ran out of soda. You're like, you're just kind of mentioning like, hey, it's kind of an embarrassing thing, but they ran, they ran out. And I love Jesus's response in verses four and five. He says, uh, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, just to be clear, guys, don't call your mom woman. In fact, it's probably a, a good idea not to call any woman woman, even if she is your woman. But actually, in this text, and sometimes there's a misunderstanding with this, this term he uses here that's translated from the Greek, woman, was actually a term of respect. Uh, it would be the equivalent of Jesus referring to his mom as miss or ma'am or, you know, or something like that. So, you know, because Jesus grew up in South Galilee. You know, he was a good Southern boy. He knew his manners. But his question, like, li if you literally translate it out in the Greek, translates out as what to you and to me. Like the tone of the question, coupled with his statement about my hour has not yet come yet, but that's an, that's an interesting statement. He's like, my time for doing these types of things has not yet arrived, gives this like beautifully hilarious moment of a mother and a son arguing about how to handle a situation. And we know mothers and sons, you know, we never have arguments. There's never things that go wrong with that. Um, in fact, really, in a lot of ways, there's one, one commentator I read where they said that Jesus' question where he says, you know, uh, what is, you know, what is this to you and to me? He said, really, like in our today vernacular, uh, could have been translated, what do you want from me, mom? 
Like, I believe, like, this story is meant to show this glorious picture of Jesus' humanity. We see this interaction between father and son that showed that Jesus wasn't just God with a, you know, a flesh suit on and he's pretending to be human. That he was genuinely human with genuinely human interactions and relationships. And so he had the same types of interactions with his mom that many of us have with our moms as well. Bickering with your mother at a wedding. But of course, like all amazing moms... Jesus' mom just ignores her son's plea, you know, of wanting to avoid unwanted attention and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. He's going to fix it. And classic mom style, she decides she needs to get involved to save the day. Have you ever, you know, do, do any of you have a smother, I mean, a, a mother like that growing up who just always had to get involved, always, you know, whether they were invited or not, they had to get involved. You know, God bless moms like that who jump in to save the day. See, Mary is like every proud mama, you know, wanting her child to be in the spotlight, you know, saying something like, you know, Jesus, no, no, son, do that thing. You know, the thing, that, that thing that everybody loves, do the thing. Like, why won't you do the thing? And you can just imagine like the way, the way Jesus responds, there's a sense of like, mom, like, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you putting me in the spotlight? And so Jesus protests, but then he ends up kind of acquiescing. You know, or it's almost like he's saying, well, okay, I'll do this. Not because you want me to, but because the spirit is leading me to do this. And scholars have often wondered why Jesus protested at first, but then performs the miracle. Some think that he was simply letting people know by protesting, saying that I'm doing this because I'm choosing to. I'm being led by the spirit to, not because I'm beholden to any you know, person to do their will. Instead, I'm led by the will of God. And so like any good 30-year-old adult man, Jesus did exactly what his mom told him to. John 2, chapter, uh, verse 6, picks up on the story. Nearby stood st six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants uh, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best to last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what started out as kind of a funny repartee between mother and son turned into Jesus's first miracle. And the way he did it was so interesting because and I think there's a great amount of symbolism here because first off, he commands the servants to fill up these large stone water jars that had had water in it for ceremonial cleansing, meaning like the water in it was considered unclean because people used it to wipe, you know, wash the dirt off and things like that. Now, they gave the capacity of these several jars and if you add up the entire capacity of the water, it was close to 120 to 180 gallons of water. 
So Jesus said, fill these all up with water. Now, of course, we think, because the story just immediately goes on, this likely probably would have taken hours to do. If you're going to a local, uh, you know, the local well or something like that, it would have taken hours to fill up this jar. And so the servants are filling up these jars, having no reason why this random rabbi is having them fill up the jars. Maybe he's just takes ceremonial cleanliness really seriously and wants them to make sure everybody's washing their hands. We know what that's like right now. But see, even once they're done, Jesus still doesn't explain what he's doing. I find that so interesting. He simply has them. He says, all right, now go take a cup of that water to the master of the banquet. And then the master's surprised that he's tasting the best wine that he's ever tasted before because that's not normally the way it is. You bring the best wine out while everybody's still sober so they're impressed by it. And then you bring out the cheaper stuff later. He's like, why have you saved the best to last? And I think there are layers of meaning for this story. At the most immediate level, this story shows us that every time Jesus is present with us, the supernatural becomes available. I love the fact that the miracle in some ways wasn't really even his idea. The whole thing starts at his mother's prompting. Just having Jesus near in your life makes it more likely that the supernatural is going to occur. And this is why it's so important for us to gather together on a regular basis on the Lord's day and to worship and to make much of Jesus's name together. And this is why in the midst of this pandemic and sheltering in place, and I know many of you are, you're feeling discouraged and, and, and scared and angry that we're not able to gather in the ways that we normally would or we normally would want to. And I actually had sent out an email earlier, uh, I think it was last week, um, that we are in the middle of a process right now, our leadership team is in the middle of a process right now of discerning God's will about what gathering together looks like in the future. And as we're going through, you know, plans and phases offered by governors and politicians for us as a community, trying to discern what does that look like for us to, you know, do the things that we value the most in the way that is safest and most loving for everybody in our community. And so though we don't have an exact plan or answers just yet, we want all of you to know that it's on our minds. We are praying about it unceasingly. And we want you to know that we're trying to discern and do God's will in the midst of that. So stay tuned as we have more news on that and make announcements around that. Because see, Jesus promised in Matthew 18 that when two or three gather in his name, he's among them. And so we can gather on Sunday mornings, someday soon, hopefully, or we can gather in our small groups of varying sizes, and we can expect Jesus to do supernatural things when we gather like that. But see, there's also a greater lesson that I think can be summed up here as well. And we find this lesson in Mary's words in verse 5, where he tells, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, the truth is, that's how I want to live my life. That is the spiritual life summed up in a nutshell. I want to live my life in a way that I just do whatever Jesus tells me. That I follow his commands, not out of obligation, not out of fear, not out of, you know, a trepidation that I'm going to get crushed if I don't, but out of a genuine love and, you know, for him and his kingdom. And so, like Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And yeah, absolutely. That's my whole life. I just want to do whatever Jesus tells me. And it shows us, I think in this lesson, it shows us the power of that. It shows us that every time we listen to and obey Jesus, 
heaven meets earth. See, the coolest thing about this miracle wasn't that it was dependent on a servant's level of faith or their understanding of what was going on because Jesus is commanding them to do all of these things and they don't even know that this is a miracle. They don't even know what's going to happen. They're just listening and doing what Jesus told them to do. You know, it was enough for them to believe Jesus when he said, hey, go fill these jars. And they're like, okay, he said it, so we're gonna do it. And even through something as simple as that, Heaven comes and meets earth in the most powerful way. You see, I think in a lot of ways, we have lost the real meaning of faith in our society. Because of the enlightenment, because of the scientific revolution and things like that, we have in many ways traded faith for belief. We think that the Christian life is just about theology, thinking the right thoughts about God, understanding the right ideas about the spiritual life. And because of that, we've lost the idea that faith has a lot more due to, has a lot more to do with trust than it has to do with understanding. See, the servants in this story, they didn't know what Jesus was doing or why he was doing it. All they had to do was to trust and do what he said. And so they filled up the jars. They put in likely hours of work to do it. And then because of that, the vineyards of heaven began to flow. They received 120 gallons of heaven's best. Now, for those of you today who might be seeking a miracle of God in your life, you know, some of you think, you know, you're trying to think your way into the power of God. If I just believe the right ideas or think the right thoughts or read the right books or if I pray enough or study my Bible enough or fast enough, then, you know, God is going to show up. But the truth is that is not Jesus's easy yoke or light burden that he promises us. When Jesus asked and invited us to come to him, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. No striving, no straining. He was inviting us to trust him first and foremost. Now, don't get me wrong. Theology does matter. Our thought life, what we believe and think about God is important. But if the Pharisees in the Bible show us anything, they show us that you can have the best theology. You can believe all the right ideas about God and still miss him by 18 inches. Trust must come first and all things else flow from that. And see, this is the truth that many of us need to hear. What if, and this is just a question I've asked of this text, what if the greatest works of God come out of the most common acts of obedience? What if God wants to unleash his power in your life for you and for those around you and all it takes is simple acts of obedience? Go talk to that person. Go care for your elderly neighbor. If you have extra and your, your friend or neighbor doesn't, give them some of that extra. Pray for that person's illness. Simple acts of obedience can be used by Jesus, we see in this story, to bring about the greatest of miracles. I mean, I was thinking about in this story, what if the servants decided not to follow Jesus' command? What if they didn't fill the jars up with water? What if they thought, well, you're not the master of the banquet. You're not the bridegroom. You're not part of that family. Uh, so we're not going to do what you ask us to do. There would have been no miracle. 
no wine. And truth be told, and I've thought about this a lot, we non-Catholics often give Mary, the mother of Jesus, a hard time. But in this story, she gets it right. Do whatever he tells you to do. That is the miraculous in the mundane. And that, in many ways, is the spiritual life. But there's also a bigger thing happening in this story that is connected to the larger biblical narrative. And it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. There, it's, in many ways, a sign that was not just pointing to who Jesus was or what he was doing. Um, but it was, it was pointing to this greater event that was beginning to break into the world. Because I found myself in this text asking the question, why water to wine? Why did Jesus do that? What was the point of turning water to wine at a wedding? Like, that didn't necessarily benefit anyone. It just saved a family from, you know, maybe some social embarrassment. But the truth is, if you know the Bible, if you studied the Bible, if you were a Jew who were familiar with the Old Testament, you would know that throughout the entire Old Testament, there was this rich symbolism about the messianic age, the age when the Messiah would come and free the people of God and he would reign and rule over the earth. And there was this fresh symbolism that during the messianic age, wine would flow freely. See, in the ancient world, wine was a symbol of unending celebration, blessing from God. The prophet Isaiah even talks about the messianic age in this way. He writes, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The prophet Jeremiah tells us a similar thing. Jeremiah writes, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. The young of the flocks and the herd, they will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. So why did Jesus turn water to wine? Because it was a sign. It was a sign to all who were paying attention that the new messianic age, the age of the kingdom of God, was about to break forth into this world. And all this time, all these texts that had been pointing to a day that was coming, and people had read it, and they had hoped for it, and they had longed for it. And by Jesus turning water to wine, he was letting them know it was beginning now in his ministry, in his life. And ultimately, as we'll see in the weeks to come, in his death and resurrection, anyone who would put their trust in him, who were, like the servants in the story, willing to listen and obey, they would drink the finest of wines in the kingdom of God. And so it's not strange that in John's other major work, because he writes a gospel, there's a few little letters he writes, but then he also writes a letter called his Revelation or his Apocalypse. And he writes about how the story ends when Jesus, the bridegroom, returns for his bride, which is us, the church. In Revelation 19.6, this is what he writes. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are we making ourselves ready? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so this story, it, it can be your story too. Jesus can take your mundane, your everyday life, and by simple trust in him and simple obedience to his commands, you can begin to see the miraculous begin to take place. You can, he can take the uncleanness in you and can change it to new wine. He can break the dry, hard ground of your heart and completely change you. If you're willing to trust him, to listen and obey, to put your trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no limit to what Jesus can do in your life. The new age has begun. The kingdom has come. And you are invited to the wedding banquet. How will you respond? And so this is how we're going to end the service today. We're going to be ending our time singing a song together about this very idea. But before we do, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity. Like I said, real faith is centered more on trust than understanding. And I want to give you the opportunity to put your trust in Jesus. If you realize I've been trusting in my own goodness or I've been trusting in my own religious works, I've been trusting in other things and people I know or how much money I have or my material possessions or where I live or whatever, I've been trusting in those things for how my life is going to go and you realize those things won't save me. Many of those things will be gone. I can't take them with me when I die. And so instead I want to put my trust in Jesus to forgive me of my sins, to be the leader of my life so that when he asks me to do something, I do whatever he tells me. If that's you, if you say, I want to put my faith, I want to put my trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I want to be a part of that age to come. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to do whatever you tell me to do. And so right now I put my trust in you. I don't trust in my own strength. I don't trust in my own abilities. I don't trust in my good works. I put my trust solely in your work on the cross to pay for my sins and your resurrection from the dead. I believe that you are the Christ the Messiah, God's chosen one to come into the world to save us from our sins. And I commit right now in trust, in faith, to follow you all the days of my life. I turn from my old way of living, my old patterns of sin. I'm not going to live in those anymore. I'm going to do everything I can by the power of your spirit to turn away from them and to live your way in the kingdom. Send your Holy Spirit in me to change me, to sanctify me, to make me holy like you are. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray.